0: Welcome to the ABR Podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online.
1: Do you love fine music, good company, and great food? This October, why not join Limelight Arts Travel on their 15-day tour of opera and song in Northern Italy. The unique itinerary is built around seven memorable performances at venues including La Fenice in Venice, La Scala in Milan, and the Teatro Olimpico in Vicenza, a remarkable Renaissance theater. Highlights include Verde's Idue Foscari, Rossini's Sparkling Le Comte Ory, and Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. We'll also be at La Scala for an important opening night when Australians Simone Young and Nicole Carr make their house debut. And, of course, there's Italy in the autumn to enjoy, from the waterways of Venice to the vineyards of the Veneto. Visit Limelight Arts Travel's website today for a full itinerary and booking information. This week on the ABR podcast, we revisit a shortlisted story from the 2016 Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize. Slut Trouble by BJ Silcox. BJ is now a well-established ABR critic and the newly minted director of the Canberra Writers' Festival, but in 2016 her work had not been widely published. Having Slut Trouble shortlisted in the Jolly Prize and republished in The Best Australian Stories 2017 were major turning points in her writerly career. Incidentally, the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, Australia's most prestigious poetry competition, worth a total of $10,000, opens on July 3 and closes on October 9. Here is BJ Silcox with Slut Trouble, commended in the 2016 Jolly Prize. Greetings, ABR listeners and readers. This is BJ Silcox, and it is such a delight to share my short story, "Slut Trouble," with you today. I had a creative writing professor once tell me that all titles should be small provocations, and I'm not sure how small the provocation it is, but "Slut Trouble" is certainly a provocation. It's a story that finds its root in late high school and a university for me, which I was living in Perth at the time, and it was when the Claremont serial killer first abducted his victims. I was 15, and learning about the power and powerlessness of young womanhood. And it was impossible at that time to not internalise the messaging that was coming through about how women should inhabit space, the way in which the discourse about the Claremont serial killer had very much been turned around to an interrogation about how culpable young women were for their own safety. So. That certainly struck me at the time and has stuck with me over time. It's a story that's taken me decades to write and it's so deeply gratifying and humbling to hear that it's a story that has resonated with ABR readers. Thank you so much for your support. This story was shortlisted for the Jolly Prize and subsequently published in an anthology of Best Australian Stories and and both of those events really changed the trajectory of my career and my life. I'm a writer full-time now and that has a lot to do with the exposure I got from, from that story. So it's been particularly lovely today to be revisiting it, to step back inside of it and hear its cadences and hold its words in my mouth and to remember that adolescent sense of sort of incipient menace that felt like it filtered through everything and really shaped the way I felt about myself and my body in the world, so thank you so much. The first girl is taken on the second weekend of the school holidays. Her name is Julianne Marks. She is 19, she is beautiful and she is gone. Everywhere we look Julianne Marks is looking back at us, just the one photo at first, the one her parents gave the police the night she didn't come home. Julianne Marks is stuffed into our letterboxes, pinned to every bulletin board, taped to every telephone pole. She takes up the whole front page of The Messenger, a full page in colour, block capital headline Where is our Julianne? Don't you just love her hair? Megan asks me. And I do, I do. People are always mistaking Megan and I for sisters because of our hair. We wear it the same way now, and from the back you can't tell us apart. Every morning before school I call Megan on the phone and she tells me what I need to do to match her. French braid, fishtail, high pony. If I listen closely I can hear the phone ringing in her house next door, the drumroll clatter of her running down the stairs to answer. We are cursed with boring hair, "'straight and house-mouse brown. "'It won't hold a curl or a crimp for longer than an hour, "'and neither of us has been allowed to dye it. "'My mum says I'm too young. "'Megan's dad, Mr Henderson, says it looks cheap and nasty. "'The only thing it does is grow, "'so Megan and I are having a competition "'to see whose will be longest by the end of the year. Six months ago, we had it cut the same length. "'Megan made the hairdresser measure it exactly, "'and neither of us has touched it since.' Megan is winning, which is how she likes it. Julianne's hair is wild and thick. Near black with a wink of red where the sun hits it. It's the colour of blackberry jam or red wine. Mr Henderson lets each of us have a half tumbler of red wine when I sleep over, so long as we promise not to tell anyone. He joined a wine club last year after Mrs. Henderson left and has been trying to teach us how to taste all the different flavours wet leather, smoke. Dried leaves. We never can, but we don't want to hurt his feelings, so we just sip and nod and sip and nod until he gives up and waves us away. Later, after he falls asleep on the couch, we slink out of Megan's bedroom and finish whatever we can find that's open. He can never keep track. We pour it into the good glasses her mum forgot to take and make up our own language for the bitterness. Can you uh, taste the halitosis in this, Laura? I can, Megan, I can. And is that an undertone of armpit? I don't know if it's armpit, but close. Perhaps a touch of gangrene? Of course it's gangrene, silly me, and with an aftershock of fingernail clippings. You are so right, Laura. That's the flavour that catches in the back of your throat. Julianne's parents, and not a suspect boyfriend, hold a press conference where they cling to each other and weep and beg for her safe return. The people they interview on the news, her university lecturers, the boss of the cafe where she works, say the most wonderful things about her. So kind, so caring, so gentle, such a good girl, an honest-to-God angel. We have no trouble believing them. Just look at that wide-open face. Beautiful. There's no better word for it. Julianne Marks is beautiful, and everyone is looking for her. Megan unpens a poster from the jacaranda that stands watch between her house and mine. Do you know something? Another appears. Do you know something? The flyer is printed on expensive paper with a colour photo of Julianne sitting cross-legged on a picnic blanket. She's wearing cut-off denim shorts and an oversized funnel shirt with the sleeves rolled up. Do you see something? The blanket is mustard yellow with a print of blue flowers. Her shirt is checked grey and black, with a wide, rust-orange diagonal stripe. You can tell it's a man's shirt because the buttons are on the wrong side. Her feet are bare, toenails unpainted. She's pointing at something off to the right, but you can't see what it is. What you can see is that Julianne wasn't expecting the camera. Her eyes are too wide, her mouth too open. You can't fake that look, no matter how hard you try. And we try. We iron the poster flat and slip Julianne marks inside the stiff cover of Megan's old copy of Possum Magic. We get into trouble for hacking the legs from last winter's jeans to make shorts. We wear them every day. The Mackenzies across the road are the only family on our block who get the thick city paper delivered every morning, but they don't pick it up until they get home from work. Megan dares me to steal it. Can't we just ask if we can have it after they're finished? when did you get so fucking boring? Megan drags the F word out. She's only just started to say it and is still enjoying the new taste of it. I can't bring myself to say it out loud, but at night I mouth it in the dark before I go to sleep. Fuck. Fucking. Fuck you. Fuck off. Megan keeps watch while I run across the road and onto the Mackenzie's lawn. I can feel her watching me. You run like a spaz, she says, as I hand her the paper. I hold it still while Megan slides the Julianne pages out slowly so they don't rip. We stuff the rest of the paper in Dr Baker's bin next door while Titus the Terrible Terrier scolds us through the fence. There's a whole section devoted to Julianne. Even a page of photos set out like a yearbook spread. Here is Julianne holding her sister's baby. At the beach in her surf life-saving uniform. High school graduation with her cap and gown. Here is Julianne kissing the cheek of her adorable not-a-suspect boyfriend, and don't they look so happy? I would absolutely fuck him, Megan says, though neither of us has had a boyfriend yet or any idea what it would be like to have one. Mum hasn't had one since Dad died, so I couldn't ask her even if I wanted to. Mrs Henderson does have one, but Megan's never met him, though she did see him once, a year ago lifting her mum's cheetah print suitcase into the back of his car. Mrs Henderson has only visited twice since, and always on her own. Last time she told me to call her Lisa, but I couldn't. Megan does. Megan is bored. Her room is boring. Her house is boring. TV is boring. I am boring. We build a tent in the far corner of my yard out of an old wool blanket and an ocky strap strung between the lemon tree and the back fence. We drag the guest bedroom mattress out across the grass and fill the tent with Megan's mum's fancy throw pillows, all velvet and tassel. Mr Henderson says he's glad to see them gone, that they made him feel like he was living in a house of ill repute. We spend the day out in the tent sucking on ice cubes of frozen cordial, reading about Julianne and listening to the Grease soundtrack on my Walkman. When school starts up next year, they'll be casting for the musical. Megan is going to try out for Sandra D, or maybe Rizzo. She can't decide. We have to be careful to keep the cassette out of the sun. If it gets too hot, the tape inside will warp and snap. In the afternoon heat, we slip into a thick, syrupy sleep. Filtered through our blanket roof, the sun fills the tent with an underwater blue. I wake before Megan and watch her in the glow, her hair mermaid loose across the pillows, lips green from the cordial. She looks so cold. Megan dreams of Julianne Marks. In these dreams, Julianne is sitting on the picnic blanket and Megan is taking her picture. Julianne points off to the right, but when Megan tries to look, she wakes up. She's trying to tell me something, Laura. Do you think she's pointing at him? I don't know, but she's definitely still alive. I can feel it. He's keeping her prisoner somewhere because he's fallen in love with her. Like Beauty and the Beast? Exactly. I know she's lying, and she knows I know. When Megan is lying, she straightens her back and tilts her chin up like she's the queen. She dictates these dreams to me, and it is my job to write them down in case she is secretly psychic, and some tiny detail is a clue that will lead the police to Julianne. We take turns practising what we will say to the TV people if we found her. I'm so glad she's still alive, I say. Is that the best you can do? Glad? That's a nothing word, Laura. You wouldn't be glad. Happy? Honestly, Laura, try harder. Megan puts her hand over her heart like she's about to sing Advance Australia Fair. Me? A hero? You're so kind to say, but I'm just so grateful that I was able to play even a small part in bringing Julianne home safe. Megan and I go shopping. I have birthday money from Grandma Bailey and Megan has Lisa's lousy guilt cash. Her mum has sent her a card with five dollars in it every month since she left. We buy flannel shirts from Men's World, not the same as Julianne's, but as close as we can find. We change into them in the shopping centre bathroom and stare into the mirror too long, hoping to catch just the smallest hint of Julianne in our own faces. We compare the length of our hair I've caught up, I say, and it's true, mine is longest. I realise too late how stupid I have been to say it. Who cares? There's still time left, you could still... I don't give a shit, Laura. It was your idea, Megan. Did you really think I was serious? Are you really that fucking dumb? I guess not. That shirt doesn't even suit you. But what about you, I ask her. We look the same, we look like sisters. But we're not. Megan yells over her shoulder as she walks out. Megan doesn't speak to me again until lunch. We are sitting at a table in the food court, silently eating our chips, when I see a woman who looks like Julianne, like a Julianne impersonator. She isn't quite as beautiful, but she has the same red darkness in her hair, the same generous smile. I point her out and Megan and I are friends again. I bet this is how he found her, she turns to me and whispers. I bet he just saw her one day and couldn't help but follow her. I bet it was love at first sight. So we follow her. We follow her from the bathroom to books, 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 where she wanders through the aisles, running her fingertips across the spines like they're harp strings. We peek at her from behind open magazines like we are movie spies. We follow her into the fancy perfume section of the chemist, where all the jewelled bottles have one-word names. Escape. Seduction. Heat. Romance. Obsessed. We follow her into Woolies and watch as she chooses fancy cheeses and a bag of red apples glossy as lipstick. We follow her out and down into the underground car park until we have her all alone. Our sneakers squeak. Our stifled laughter spills. She never notices us. See how easy it would be? Megan asks as we watch her drive away. The second girl is taken on the day that would have been my parents' 17th wedding anniversary. Her name is Kimberly Watson. Mum is driving us back from the video store when the news comes on the radio. We learn that Kimberly Watson was 22, an aspiring actress who was last seen outside a bar called Club Exotique hopping into a taxi. Bloody stupid girl, Mum says. She changes the station as we wait at the lights. Now it is Kimberly Watson's face all over the telly. Her first photo is a close-up in black and white. She's staring into the camera with a smile that's pulled tight as a mousetrap, eyelids dark and smudged like she is sliding out of focus. I don't like that photo, I say. She's trying too hard. It's not a photo, it's a headshot, dumbass, Megan says. She knows about these kind of things. Mr Henderson says that only sluts get into the kind of trouble Kimberly Watson has clearly gotten herself into. What kind of trouble is that, I ask him. Slut trouble, Laura. Slut trouble. I ask my mum about slut trouble and she suggests that movie night should be at our place from now on. After Kimberly Watson, the summer becomes claustrophobic. Megan and I aren't allowed to go anywhere on our own, not even down to the park or the deli on the corner, definitely not to the beach. Mr Henderson spends a whole weekend building a gate into the fence between our two houses so that we don't have to walk out onto the street to see each other. Megan and I beg our parents to be allowed to sleep in the tent at night. It's sticky and hot under the blanket's blue roof, but late in the evening the smothering air starts to stir as the sea breeze comes in and the tent sucks the air in and out like it is breathing. We sleep deeply and wake with the sun, our hair snarled with bottle brush spikes and the thin, sharp leaves from the peppermint tree. Kimberly Watson's family doesn't cry. Her father clenches his jaw so tight you can almost hear his teeth squeak. Her mother stares off to the side of the room, but her eyes don't catch on anything. She reminds me of one of those fish you can buy propped up on the slush behind the meat counter. Kimberly's twin brother reads a statement. You can see the echo of Kimberly in his face, but in him it's more handsome. I'd fuck him, I say, but Megan pretends not to notice. She deserves whatever she gets, Megan says. I'm not exactly sure how the game starts, but Megan is in charge. We play it in the tent at night once my mum turns the house lights off. Megan is Julianne and I am him. To get into character, Megan coils her limp rope of hair under a black wig from an old witch costume and wears her flannel shirt. I wear a brown suit jacket that smells of Mr Henderson, wet leather, dried leaves, smoke. We stand together in the tent and I say, you are the most beautiful creature I have ever seen, Julianne Marks. I love you and I must have you, and press a chloroformed handkerchief to her mouth. It's a tea towel sprayed with some of my mum's drugstore perfume. Megan swoons to the mattress. The rules are simple. He can do whatever he likes to her. If she moves, she loses. If Megan laughs or squirms or opens her eyes, the game is over and we start again, but this time she is him and I am Kimberly Watson. I'm not allowed to be Julian Marks. There's no point in arguing. When I am Kimberly, I wear one of the dresses that Megan's mum left behind. An itchy, black thing with massive shoulder pads and two rolls of gold buttons down the front, the size of honky nuts. When I am Kimberly, all he says is slut. I do not swoon. I am pushed. At first it is easy to win. We tickle, stick tongues and ears and fingers up noses, whisper the grossest words we know, booger, fanny, sperm, tampon, fallopian. And that's all it takes before we are both lost. Curled up together in the mattress, our laughter loud and loose. Titus complains from behind the fence. Our stomachs ache from holding the laughter in. But on the third night, the words aren't funny anymore. We are no longer ticklish. I am him, and Megan can't, won't be stirred. She is lying on her back with her arms up above her head. In the moon dark, the wig looks like her real hair. Her head is tilted back, her eyes are closed, and in that moment I can see her. I can see Julianne, perfect, beautiful Julianne, in Megan's mean little face. I hate her. I fucking hate her. I stand over her and stomp one foot down onto her belly fast and hard, catch the sharp lurking edge of her hip against the heel of my foot. She makes a strange animal noise and curls onto her side away from me. I beat you, I say. You lose. She refuses to speak but stands, pulls off the wig and shakes out her hair. I unbutton the jacket. It is my turn. I am ready for her to hurt me. Slut. She pushes me to the mattress and sits on my stomach. She moves heavily, drives the air out of me. The dress buttons press against my ribs. I feel her weight shift and she slaps me hard. I keep my eyes closed, say nothing. I can feel her body tightening and I know she is going to slap me again. It hurts less the second time. She slides herself down so she is pinning my knees and leans over me. Her hair falls across my eyelids. I can almost taste her strawberry shampoo. I can feel her undoing the giant buttons of Lisa's dress and opening it up, and then the smaller buttons of my nightie too. The tent fills with the new sour milk smell of my sweat. There is only dark against my skin now, the dark and her heavy eyes. It's not cold, but my skin bucks and prickles as she runs her fingertips in slow loops over my face and throat and nipples and ribs and then up again and deep into my hair. Again. Again. But this time she drags her bitten nails down my belly and hooks her fingers into the waistband of my knickers. I wait. She snaps the elastic. You reek! She spits at me as she pushes herself up and leaves the tent. I know this is a test, and so I wait. I hear the gate and the fence thump open and then the back door of the Henderson house, and I wait. There is ocean in the air now. The night is chilling and I'm pressing myself tight into the mattress to hold the shiver. I am waiting. I listen to the cicadas and the crickets, the garden's insect heartbeat. Everything seems louder, the smell of the chloroformed rag, the sheep stink of the wool, the crushed leaves of the peppermint tree. I am waiting for him. And I know now with a cold and magnificent certainty that even after this game is over, a part of me will always be waiting.
0: Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors, who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.